couple of songs ago, we uh, sang just a short sentence. It just caught in my throat. I am his and he is mine. Turning to our uh, taught reading this morning, we go to uh, 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy scripture. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliabab and thought, surely the Lord anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees and looks on the over outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abimabad and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him And he sent and brought him to, uh, brought him in, sorry. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up 
and went to Rama. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks, Rich. Good to have you reading again. Uh, let's uh, open a word of prayer before we uh, turn to uh, the scriptures. Lord, it is in Christ alone um, that we're found, that we stand, that our sin is dealt with. And Lord, it's in Christ alone that we wait his return. And so thank you for these wonderful words that we get to sing and, and praise you through this. Um, Lord, I want to pray for, with a heavy heart, pray for the families of uh, Covenant Church and School in, in uh, Nashville, uh, the shooting this week. Killed three beautiful, innocent children and three brave adults who, um, who were in the way of the shooter. And Lord, the, the grief that is going on in that community is, is got to be large. It's always hard to see children um, assaulted like this, killed. Lord, I just pray that you would bring healing and hope. Lord, that uh, covenant would be a, a, an example of Christian suffering uh, to a watching community, that as people are looking, that they would see what it means to, to grieve with hope, to uh, have faith in the, in the resurrection and to trust in you. So, Lord, would you bless those saints? Holy Spirit, would you seal them, hold them up, strengthen them as they endure the struggle of what they have to face? Father, I want to pray also for our government. Um, you say in, in Romans 13 that the government's job is to secure the peace, and our government's failing us in this, and so we pray that you would uh, equip them, that you would make them brave, that they could look beyond their elections and their partisan politics and say, people are dying, children are dying, and surely there's something we can do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would equip and motivate our government to, to take appropriate actions to address these problems. But, Lord, at the root of especially this shooting but others, the, the real issue has been isolation, loneliness, separation, uh, people who have uh, wound up in, in little echo chambers where they hear only one message over and over again about who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. And Lord, that's, that's a dangerous pattern to be in. And that's not anything the government could address, but Lord, that's where your church could step in. As we are a multitude of different peoples coming together of different political persuasions, of different races, of different ethnicities, all of those different things, Lord, all of them coming together in Christ. That's what it means that there is neither uh, male nor female, uh, Greek or Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would use your church to address that loneliness, that isolation, that desperation in our, in our nation. And, Lord, to that end, we pray, would you please bring revival? Would you please, Holy Spirit, move through this land and waken many people to the reality of who Jesus is, to the glory of the gospel, to the beauty of being saved in Christ, that we might look past our divides, our divisions, our, our arguments, not see the other side as evil, but one of us, as evil as we are, but redeemed or redeemable in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you please use your church to heal what our government can never address? And, Lord, please put an end to these senseless shootings. Father, we want to pray also for um, the communities in the South and in the Midwest that were struck by tornadoes this week, uh, the destruction, the devastation, the death that came from those things. Um, 
Lord, I pray that uh, the families who are now having to put their lives back together as they see all of their belongings in shambles, Lord, that they would hear what Jesus had to say about gaining the world and losing their soul. Lord, that all of these things are going to wind up in a pile eventually anyway. And so I pray, Lord, that you might break some uh, hearts away from material possessions. And Lord, that you would help people find that there's something much more than just what they have or what they live in or what they drive. Lord, that uh, you would use the, the tragedy of this, uh, these tornadoes to waken up people to the hope that they could have in Jesus Christ. And, and Lord, I pray for your church that we would respond well, materially helping people clean up and rebuild and, and all of those things. Um, but Lord, that we would do those things in light of and through the, the announcement of the gospel, that we're here because Jesus loves them and wants to care for them and provide for them. So Lord, would you use those tragedies uh, again for your glory and for your great and wonderful purposes? And Father, I want to finish by praying, uh, thanking you for the work that you've done at Church of the Canyons. Um, Lord, you've been faithful to them over the couple of years without a senior pastor, and now that um, Chris Ullman has, has agreed to the call, that he's, he said that he is um, accepting the call to be their pastor. Lord, we just pray for Chris and his family as they have to prepare many things to move um, out, out here and settle, and, and, and Lord, step into the role of the senior pastor in that church. And there's a lot of rebuilding, healing, uh, planning, organizing to do, and so we pray that you would equip him, that he is the right man for that job, that that is the person you called to be the pastor of that church for their building up. And so, Lord, we look for another healthy church in our area and pray that you would accomplish that in and through them. Um, Father, we're grateful for the churches that we've partnered with, that we have friendships in, and uh, we pray for them this morning, that they would be uh, fed through the word of God by the Holy Spirit and growing in the image of Jesus Christ, their creator, their savior. And Lord, would you do that in, in us now? Would you stir revival in us? Would you waken us up to the beauty of the gospel through your word? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Um, they say that uh, clothing makes the man, um, you know, so look how Natalie dressed I am. Um, but that's kind of an idea that, you know, what you're wearing kind of shapes you and, and fold, or molds you. So this, this morning, there's, a, there's an online men's clothing retailer that I follow. I've shopped from them before, and they send out a newsletter. And, and this morning, they sent out a newsletter, and they were talking about that very thing about how what a man wears kind of defines who he is. Um, and they were talking about blazers, because guess what they're selling? They got blazers on sale. But it was an interesting story. I thought it was really, really helpful. Uh, so I'm just going to read a couple highlights from it. He says, the our author says, once upon a time, I was an assistant to a literary agent, let's call him Arthur, who was dashing and charming and, as it turned out, also unhinged. After he bankrupted the company, went missing for weeks, and then got dragged out of a fancy hotel room and committed to Bellevue, we had questions. Among them, how did he get away with it for so long? The answer, he wore a nice, a really, really nice blue blazer. In the three years I worked for Arthur, I rarely saw him without a blazer. He wore it to lunches with editors and authors. He wore it on the bus. He wore it when he got his hair cut. He was handsome, if a little cruel looking, and the blazer made him look, seem waspy and dissolute. The perfect persona for a literary agent. So he goes on, he says, Arthur's blazer also hid what should have been in plain sight. 
When he put it on, he no longer looked hungover. Instead, he looked charmingly rumpled. When he met with strange people for unexplained errands on the sidewalk outside the office, he looked upstanding, not creepy. When he stuffed cash into his pockets, it seemed more absent-minded than desperate. So he concludes the article, he says, brought into existence in 1825 by a rowing team at St. John's College, Cambridge, blazers have become something magic. They can hide a multitude of sins or celebrate your greatest virtues, demand respect or show humility, signal kindness, or, uh, sing, signal, signal kindness or kinship or fortify your defenses. So this is that idea that, that the clothes make the man. So notice I am not wearing a blazer this morning. <laughs> I'm kind of convicted by this. I'm not trying to hide anything. But the reason that that works is because we can only see the outside of a person. So if a person dresses a certain way, carries themselves in a certain way, you won't notice that they're completely insane, like, this, like Arthur, the literary agent, because they appear to be in charge and calm and control. What we're going to see this morning, though, is that when the Lord looks at people, he looks on the heart. He sees past the clothing, and he sees into the heart of the person. And, and that's the, the nature of the call of David, is this, this God viewing the heart. So let's take a look at the story. It begins with Samuel grieving over Saul. He, he's, it, the last chapter ended with, um, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Saul, Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So it ended with Saul's grief, and now we're picking that story up again. And God rebukes uh, Samuel. Why are, how long are you going to grieve over him? I have rejected him. It's done deal. This is it. It's happened. So now he's not saying, so Israel's without a king again. The next thing he says is, fill your horn and go. So they would take a ram horn. They had a little cap on the top, and they would fill it with oil. So he says, fill that and go. I will send you to Jesse, uh, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, earlier, um, when the people called for a uh, king, God made them a king. And how did that work out? Now he says, I will, I will provide for myself a king. So God is telling um, Samuel here, he has chosen somebody to replace Saul, and it's for his own purpose, his own glory, for what he's, he's accomplishing. So whatever was going, whatever was going on with, with Samuel and Saul, Samuel was not like, man, am I glad we're rid of that jerk. He, he was distressed by it. He was, he was troubled over it. You kind of get the impression that Saul had this relationship with, or Samuel had this relationship with Saul that was almost fatherly, more of a mentor and, and care for him, even though he could, he could be really angry with him at, at times because like, why did you sacrifice before I got here? That was, that was the wrong thing to do, and he could really be angry with them. But if you care for somebody, you get angry when they screw up. You don't just blow them off. If you don't care, you just go, oh, well, you had it coming, you jerk. So you get the impression that, that Samuel really cares for Saul. He's got a personal connection to him, like a father-son relationship almost. And yet, what comes next is really startling. Samuel said, how can I go? For if Saul hears it, he will kill me. Samuel has been grieving over Saul, worried about him, concerned about him, and now he's terrified that he's going to kill him if he finds out what he's up to. I, I think this is beginning to paint a picture of where Saul is. Where has he gone? He, he has gone really off the deep end. He is so 
beside himself that he could kill Samuel, his friend. And so God says, okay, well, here's what we'll do. Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to offer a sacrifice to God. So when God says, make a sacrifice, do you get to say, oh, well, that didn't really mean make a sacrifice. He, he told him, really, go make a sacrifice. This is what we call in the military OPSEC, Operation Security. If you make a big movement of troops, then the bad guys know what's going on. So you have to have some cover story, some way to hide it. So for example, in the 80s, the F-117 flew for a long time before we ever acknowledged it in 1988. So how would you move this unit around, fly them into Europe and other places, and then have all of this security and not let people know what's going on? So the OPSEC for the F-117 was they took some Vietnam-era A-7s, painted them black, and parked them out on the ramp. So if anybody said, what are you here for? Oh, I'm with those A-7s. Not a lie. But what you didn't know is there was a hangar full of F-117s hiding right behind him. So that's OPSEC. That's what God is doing for Samuel here. He's providing operation security. So you, I, what you're going to do is you're going to anoint the next king. Now let's cover that. We're gonna, you're also going to go offer a sacrifice. So if anybody asks, just mention the sacrifice. It's not lying. It's not deceitful. It's, it's security. It's saying, I'm covered. So if Saul gets word of you going to Bethlehem, he's not going to go, what's going on? He's going to go, oh, he's, he's, this is what he does. He travels around. He's offering a sacrifice. And he says, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and went to Bethlehem. So he, he travels on. He's ready to go. He's going to obey God. He gets to Bethlehem, and they just throw the door open, and, oh, we're so glad you're here, Samuel. Great to see you. Nope. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? Is this bad news? The prophet just showed up. Are we in trouble? Did we do something wrong? They're really nervous about why is he there. They weren't expecting him. So they're, they're asking, are, is this a mission of peace? Are you bringing bad news from Saul? Are you coming to judge us? Are you telling us we did something wrong? They're nervous, and he says peaceably. Shalom is the word that he uses. So I'm coming in shalom. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then he says, consecrate yourselves. Now what he means by consecrate yourselves is in the old covenant, you had to be clean to come to the sacrifice. So that meant if he said in two days we're going to have the sacrifice, that meant you had to plan ahead, two days ahead, and say, all right, the sacrifice is there. I need to, I, you know, I was dealing with some, uh, some stuff, and I've got unclean. I've got to go through this ceremony, and tonight at midnight or at the sundown, I'll be clean again. You had to plan ahead for this. So nobody just waltzed into the sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. Make yourself clean. Make yourself holy. Be ready for this sacrifice. Wouldn't it be great if we consecrated ourselves before we came to worship or serve or something like that? Just took a day or two before and thought about what's coming, what am I about to do? Rather than, um, oh, it's Sunday morning, I guess I'll get up and go to church. Planning ahead. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest, I'm stealing this from Dan Stromberg. Because he was talking about the Sabbath in Sunday school, and he said you had to plan ahead for the Sabbath. You knew the day was coming, and you couldn't do certain things, so you had to plan ahead. You had to think ahead in the Old Covenant. And it wasn't so spontaneous. Wouldn't that be something if, if Samuel showed up and said, consecrate yourself? We're going to worship Jesus tomorrow. You went, oh, okay, what do I got to do? Well, I better get some sleep. You know, you'd start planning ahead for it. I just think it's a beautiful picture that that, uh, that, that idea of consecrating yourself is. And then it says, um, he says, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. 
and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So that seems to undo what I just said. So, what, so never mind what I just said. No, that's not true. What, what does it mean by consecrate your, he consecrated Jesse and his sons? He didn't see Jesse and his sons until the sacrifice. So it's not like he went up and waved his hands over Jesse and his sons and said, you guys are now holy or something. I think what it means in that case, when he says he consecrated them, he said, you're coming to the sacrifice, you're, you're invited. So it's not just everybody. I'm calling specifically these folks. And so it's a holy calling that he's placing on them. The consecration isn't, isn't magic or anything. It didn't make them clean. He consecrated them and said, this is the special ones that I want to come. So I think that's what he's getting at. He, he consecrated Jesse and his sons. So verse 6, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. number of really interesting things. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me? No, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Jo Samuel has come to this, this offering. He's gathered Jesse's sons, and he fully believes that it is the Lord who is watching this, who is present with him. He doesn't feel like it's, he's not involved. This is happening before the Lord. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is the one he's picked. That's what he's thinking. And it's Eliab. Um, Eliab is Eli and Ab. So A-B is father. And A Eli, E-L, L is like the shorthand for Elohim. It's the kind of generic word for God. And the I is possessive. It's my. So God is my father standing before him. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. I, I don't want to go too far with that. I just thought it was interesting that that was the first son that shows up as God is my father. And so he's like, this has got to be it. We have found our query. First person out of the chute, we got him. And God responds, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the criteria that, that people had, the, the way that they recognized Saul as king, what they thought was really magnificent about him in chapter 9 is they said, um, and he had a son named Saul who was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. So Samuel is looking and going, hey, that was Saul. Maybe that's Eliab. He could be the same guy. He's got the same requirements, height, good looks. This is it. This is our guy. But God says, this isn't how I look at things. When we look at things, we can only look at the outside. We can only determine from the appearance of the person. Now, we can dig a little bit deeper. As we spend time with them, we can begin to see what they act like. But we look at the externals and go, this man fits the bill. He's the quarterback of the team. He's tall. He's handsome. He's, he's, he's the guy we're looking for. But that's not how God looks. God looks inward. He looks at the heart of the people. And really, this is the point of the story. This is the whole point of the entire calling of David to be king is God looks at the inside. And you can tell that because, first of all, because when God speaks, that's what it's about. So when God talks, that's when you shut up and listen. This is what the story is about. Now, God has spoken a couple other places, but he's been giving commands. Do this, go there, take a heifer. At this point, he's not giving commands, he's teaching it's what you would call didactic. He's teaching about himself. He says, Samuel, you look at the outside of the man. That's not what I do. I look on the inside. And so that, that idea of looking is really what the, the chapter is, or the section of the chapter is about. It's, it's really important. 
You can't see it in English as well, but the Hebrew gives you a little bit more insight into this because the word, the root word for look is in a lot of these places or to see. So verse one, I have provided. It's literally, I have seen to myself. So the see is right there. And then here in verse six, the word appears, what, four times. He looked, his appearance, the way you see him, his appearance. The Lord sees, man looks. Those are all words that have that, that look root in them. And then when David shows up, it says he was handsome. He was good to look at. It's that same root word, that, that idea of look and see. And then in the next section, we're not going to get it to it this morning, but in verses 17 and 8, Saul says, provide, see to, provide for me a man who can play well. And a young man says, I have seen. So that word see repeats over and over again. You can't see it in the English quite as well, but you still get the point, don't you? If you just look at what God says, you go, yeah, this is about seeing. This is about perceiving and understanding. And so this is what's going on. We've asked the question about why has Saul been rejected? And why would he choose David? And I'm going to leave that question about why not Jonathan just hang for a while. We're going to let that continue to bother us. It's just going to be a burr under our saddle for a bit. But here's the answer to this question. Why not Saul and why David? Because God sees the heart of the man. God looks at the inside of the person. What he sees in Saul is not good. Saul started out pretty good. Remember his early career, he did pretty well. He, he went out and he fought the Philistines and he chased them off and it was great. And then things didn't go quite so well. He offered an illegal sacrifice, jumping ahead of, of the plan. And why did he do that? Well, the people are leaving me. I, I have to have people around me. And then the next episode we see is when Jonathan goes and chases off the Philistines while dad's asleep under a tree. And then when finally he wakes up, he says, I will be avenged. Nobody eats until I am avenged. It's all about Saul. And then last week, what happened is he went and he attacked the Amalekites. Did a great job, wiped them all out. Well, most of them, a lot of them. He wiped a lot of them out, except for the ones he was supposed to. And then he builds a monument to himself and he goes to Gilgal. What is the kingdom about as far as Saul is concerned? It's about me. It's about how I look. Now, I'm going to try to give him a little bit of a break. We have a little historical precedent here for this. It's possible that Saul is jealous for the office, this newly established office of president, or president, of king of Israel. And he's, he's trying to fill that role and say, this role has to be exalted, it has to be important. But I think what's happening to Saul is he's beginning to blend the office of king with the person of Saul and seeing them mixed together. And the reason I say that, I think that's what's going on is because that's what happened to Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was very jealous for the office of president. He didn't want people to, to um, insult or degrade that office. But as he was in office for a while, he began to blend those two together. And so what happens is at the end, he winds up committing the crime of you know, authorizing a break-in at Watergate. And his, his, his career as a president is over. And it's unfortunate because he did some good things. He had some real victories. He was the president that got us out of Vietnam. He was the president who went to China. No president had gone to communist China before, and he went to China. So he had done these, these great things, but he just blew it all because he had gotten so wrapped up in himself and the president that he couldn't separate the two and say, the president is the office, 
and there's laws in this land, and we're, we're a nation of laws, and, and if the office is attacked, well, then we got to do this in, in conjunction with the law. So what you get with Saul is that same kind of picture. He's blending his personal glory with the office of king. And so I have to be glorified because I want king to be glorified. And when God looks at that, he says, that's not what I want. That's not what I'm after. I know your heart, Saul. I know where you went. So this is why God at this point now says, I'm going to provide for myself a king. I provided the king you guys wanted, and now it's time for me to provide a king for myself. And so fill your horn with oil and go. So that's why he looks at, at um, Eliab and says, that's not it. God had to tell him, this is not the guy. I know what you feel like. I know what he looks like. He's probably got a blazer on, probably a blue blazer. And he looks really great. This is not the man. Don't let the externals fool you. Okay, all right. So it's not the first guy. So then Jesse parades the rest of his sons, well, most of his sons, out before him. One after another, they come out. And what Samuel says, now we don't get the Lord speaking. Now it's Samuel going, nope, not that one. Not that one. Not that one. And he gets to the end, and there's no more sons, and he's, he's perplexed. Wait a minute. God told me I was supposed to anoint one of these boys, and he just rejected all the ones you brought before me. Is there another one? And, and that's where we finally get to figure out there's one missing here. Samuel said, are all your sons here? And he said, ah, there remains yet the youngest, but he, behold, he's, holding, he's watching the sheep. He's too little for this. This is big people stuff. This is grown-up stuff. The little boy's out taking care of the sheep. That, that can't be. And Samuel says, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. Even the littlest one, you've got to bring them all before me because I got, I'm batting zero so far. When he says we will not sit down until he comes, what he means is when they offer the sacrifice, they burn parts of it, they cook the rest, and then they have a big feast. So he's like, nobody eats until the youngest gets here. Just wait. So they sent and they brought him, and he comes in, and he's ruddy, and he has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. So what is ruddy? I never understood that. <laughs> ruddy means red. So the theory is maybe he had red hair, or maybe because he's young, he had kind of a, a, a red complexion, a, a blush complexion because of his youth, something along those lines. But there's a, an air of uniqueness to him, a, a, an air of strength. He was ruddy. And he had beautiful eyes. So you'd look into his eyes, and he just, he just had this beautiful face, and he was handsome. Wait a minute. Didn't God just say, you don't look on the outside of the person? He, didn't he just say, I, you look at the outside, and that's what you're impressed with. I'm looking on the inside. Well, this is a false dichotomy we set up. If they're good-looking, then they must not be. Or if they're good-looking, then they must be. And what God's saying is, that's immaterial. Yes, he's a really handsome kid. I don't care about that. I'm looking at the heart. And so he comes in, and he's, he's, they see him, and this is when the Lord speaks again. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the king I will provide for myself. The youngest? The little kid? Really? This is the one you're going to pick? And so that's what happens. Is he, he rises up, he pours oil on him, and he anoints him right in the midst of his brothers. Now, I don't think he announced to the family what that meant. He simply poured oil on him 
and that was it. And the reason I say that is because when we get to the next chapter in a couple of weeks, they're going to be mad at him, and they're going, why are you coming out? You just come out to watch the battle, you little brat. What's going on? They don't treat him as if he's just been anointed king. So I don't think they maybe, I don't think he poured oil on him and said, thus he, here is the king of Israel. Uh, I think that becomes apparent later on. But just knowing the way his brothers react to him, they sure don't act like they're, they're uh, standing in the presence of the future king. So he's now anointed king. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Why was David so successful? Why was he so wise? Why was he such a great uh, psalmist? Why was he all? Because the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. He went home. So what are we seeing that's going on here? Well, the major theme of this is God sees the heart. So when he looked at David, what he saw was there was something in David's heart that he desired. Remember when he cast off Saul the first time, he said, I'm going to seek a man after my own heart to be the king. And so there's something that he sees in David that says, this is a man after my own heart. This is somebody who is set their desires on the desires that I have. And that's what we mean when we talk about heart in the Bible. It is the center, the root of your desires. What do you want? What is it that you desire the most? What it is in David is there's something different about him. His desires align more with God's than Saul's did. Saul's desires were for his own glory. What we're going to see as we go through David's life here is his, his desire, his concern is with God's glory. And so that's what God sees in David. That's what he recognizes in him. Now, don't take that to mean that David must have been perfect in every way, shape, and form. We already know of his, his major sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. We know he's not perfect. I would argue that some of his other exploits are a little bit shady too, like when uh, Nabal refuses to give his men food and he says, Let, strap on your sword, we're going to go slaughter the whole household because they won't give you food? Is that a legitimate reason to kill all these people? He didn't do it, so God didn't rebuke him for it, but I mean, you see that he's not perfect. He, he has these moments, and yet the Spirit rushed upon him from that day forward. He had the Spirit of God. He had, his heart was after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but he was God's man. He was the one that God had, had raised up for, for this. So this, this whole section is not the story of David. It, it's not. He doesn't show up to the very end. He's, not, he's named once at the very end of the whole story. It's not the story of David. This whole story is the story of God and how God sees people, how he, how he recognizes people. He looks on the heart. He sees what's inside of a person. And by the way, this is a pretty good argument for the deity of Jesus Christ because in John chapter 2, it says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He looks, Jesus looks on the heart as well. He didn't need anybody to come and tell him this is a good guy, that's a bad guy. He knew what was in the heart of him. So God chose David knowing his heart, knowing he would be tempted to sin, knowing that he would not succeed. Didn't he choose Saul as well? Didn't he tell Samuel, this is the one, rise up and anoint him? Here's the thing. God knew Saul's heart at the time. He knew exactly what Saul was capable of, what he would do, and he chose him and he put him on the throne and he said, this is the man. Knowing what would come of him, because he knew his heart. The reason I bring this contrast up between David and Saul, when I, when I mentioned that Jesus 
knows our heart like this is because there's comfort in this. We, we can look, remember, all the kingdoms of God are under his authority. He puts on the throne whomever he will. That was the repeated theme. It's said four times in, in Daniel 5, 4 and 5, is God is active in the affairs of men, and he raises up people he, will, he wants, good people and bad people, right kings and wrong kings, Trump and Biden. He's put them all in the throne. He's put them there. That's his call. And he knows. Now, he's not looking and going, boy, I hope this works out well. You know, this is the guy, and, and I think he's going to work out well. I, I hope this works out. He's not caught off guard. He doesn't go, well, that didn't pan out the way I wanted. Let's take him out and try another one. He put these people in place on purpose. So we have this comfort in knowing even if we have bad leaders, even if we have wicked leaders, God put them there. They're not running loose on their own. They're still under his sovereign control, and that can give us hope and help. I think that's how the early church was able to face people as wicked as um, Nero, as, as evil as Domitian, and, and still hold their faith because they're going, you're not on the throne by yourself. God puts you there. That's what Jesus told Pilate. This is week is, is Palm Sunday. That's exactly what Jesus told Pilate. You would have no authority if my God hadn't given it to or my father hadn't given it to you. And God knew Pilate's heart. He knows what is in each man. So that's the hope that we have. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus knows what's in the heart of each man. He knows what's in your heart. He knows who you are. You don't have private thoughts from him. That's, now, that part scares me, because sometimes my thoughts scare me, and I'm like, wait a minute. But Jesus is like, I already know you. I know you better than you know yourself. And I love you. I know what your thoughts are. I know your doubts. I know your wicked desires. I know your glorious desires. And I love you. I chose you. And so that can be scary, but think about it for a second. To, to be known and not loved is crushing. Somebody knows you and goes, I don't like you. And you know that they know you. That, that's, that's devastating. But to be known and not loved, I mean, I'm sorry, so the other one is to be not known and loved is empty. You're, you're, you don't know who I am. You just love this fictitious person that you think I am. But to be thoroughly known and deeply loved is incredible. When God says, I know everything about you, your pluses and your minuses, I know all of it. And I'm not put off by it. I love you. That is just empowering. It's enabling. It's it's so well-rounded to be loved that way that God would care for you because every, since he knows all of that, he can work on those things with you. He can work in you and work through you because he knows you and he loves you. It's just a blessing to think of it that way. With David, God knew his heart, the pluses and the minuses, knew exactly what was going on, knew lust was going to be a problem, knew you know, anger was going to be a problem. And he loved him anyway. He called him. He says, he's after my own heart. And then he, he rushed, his spirit rushed upon him. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. As he says, you're my friends. I love you. And then at the end of John, he breathed on them and he gave them the Holy Spirit. In, in Acts chapter 2, the, the upper room is filled with a noise and the Holy Spirit rushes upon his people and they go out and they preach. And so that's the blessing that we have is Jesus knows us 
intimately. He loves us deeply and his spirit has rushed upon all of us. We are all sealed in the spirit of Jesus Christ. The pluses and the minuses, the good and the bad. He's working in all of that. And then we have this new covenant promise that says that is the work of the Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of the Son. So he's working on all of those things. He's leading us in holiness. He's making us to grow with him. At the same time, we can know that there are times when we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. David could grieve the Holy Spirit. The Spirit didn't depart from him, but he wasn't happy about what David was doing. And that was the conviction that fell on David. So when he was confronted by Nathan, you are the man. He fell on his face and wept because he knew he was the man. That was because of the work of the Spirit had been working in him and leading him and guiding him. So here's the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Is Jesus, is he a man after God's own heart? Perfectly. Better than David ever could be. He is the eternally begotten Son of God, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. His desire is God's desire. He is a man perfectly after God's own heart. And so that's why it's great news that he's king. Not only is he a man after God's own heart, he knows what's in every man. He knows us. And so in his death and his resurrection, he sends us his spirit. His spirit rushes upon us. So we get to reign and rule with him. According to Revelation 3, we sit on the throne with him. Even though we're probably as bad as David, maybe a little worse. That's okay. God's working in us. His spirit is working. He's leading us. He's guiding us. So we get in Jesus, we get not only David, we get David's greater son. And we're invited in to reign with him and rule with him. Because God looks on the heart. So you don't have to pass a beauty contest to be a member of the church. You don't have to have, pass some uh, theological quiz to be a member of the church. You don't have to pass some degree of holiness. How many good deeds have you done to be a member of the church? God looks on that and says, that's nice. I'm looking at the heart. What's going on in your heart? God's desire is that his name be glorified throughout the entire earth. That's his desire. That's why he created everything was for his own glory. If you have a heart after God's own heart, your desires are, I want to see God's glory more. I want other people to see God's glory more. And if you don't feel that, then pay attention to what the Spirit is doing in you. And see if he doesn't lead you in that way, guide you in that way, be prompting you in that way to begin to put yourself aside more and more and more and say, I want more of God and more of God and more of God. I want Jesus to be made known throughout the nations. That's what the kingdom looks like now. As, as God has commissioned you, he said, go to the nations and make disciples. That's his kingdom. And he knows the hearts of all people. And he knows you're a big fat chicken. Did I say you? I meant me. He knows I'm a big fat chicken. And yet he's commissioned us, he's called us, he equipped us with his Holy Spirit, given us this message of reconciliation to say, now go. That's our king. That's the calling of David. In microcosm, David gets called that way. In the bigger picture, that's us. We get called in that way too. This is how God works. It's about God. It's not, remember I kept saying, you're not David, you're not Saul, you're not um, Jonathan. You're not. But this isn't about David at all. It's about God. And this is how God applies it to us. And so as we, you know, we go into Easter and we remember his death and his resurrection, it was so great to sing about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem because he didn't come 
on a war horse and with this big, huge army behind him. He came in humbly. And I just love that the children are singing Hosanna. And the, and the, the Pharisees go, do you hear what they're saying? Oh, yeah, I hear what they're saying. It's great. Haven't you read? It's just beautiful. That's the nature of our king. That's a heart after God's own heart. That's a king I can follow. David, he had his moments. <laughs> but Jesus comes. And so as we enter into the, the Easter season, as we come into Good Friday and then uh, Easter Sunday, remember this is our king. This is our king who knows our hearts and loves us anyway. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our king, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, the, the title Christ or Messiah is a kingly office. And Lord, even here we saw David was anointed. He was the anointed one. And that's what Messiah and that's what Christ mean is anointed. And so Lord, here you are, our anointed, our Christ, our king. And Lord, I pray that you would reign more firmly and more surely throughout your entire church across our nation, but across the globe as well. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you continue to rush upon people and equip them, fit them for obedience to Jesus Christ. Replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Inscribe on those fleshy hearts God's law. Incline us towards obedience. Cause us to grow in the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we do, equip us and fit us to complete the Great Commission and make disciples of all nations. Lord, spread your kingdom, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen.